back here playing the drums as though he was being paid for it. Dr. Roboto himself. Okay, everyone, we are back with episode 32 of The Great Divide. We came, we're coming fresh off the last interview with Bruce Watson, and Svein and I were ready to go into just one of our, I, I guess, quote-unquote more mundane shows where we discuss something, and then something great happened. Uh, an interview with the great Mark Brzezicki came upon our doorstep, and so we are welcoming Mark to the show for the first time. How you doing, Mark? I'm very well. Nice to talk to you, Tom. You too. And you, Svein? Yes. And you, John. Oh, sorry, I'm not supposed to give that away. <laughs> That's okay. John is lurking in the shadows, yeah. as most people know. And, uh, and John. Yeah, and with me, as always, is Svine from Norway. How are you doing, Svine? I'm pretty good. Looking forward to this. So yeah. we were ready for talking about something completely different. But I, I guess for two days now, we knew that it would be Mark instead. So we'll see how quickly we can get reorganized. Good to have you here, Mark. Thank you very much. Good yeah, to be here. Definitely. Okay, so Mark, I, I guess the best place to start, and and uh, as I say, this will, this will just be like a free-flowing type of conversation with some minimal structure, I guess, but I think the best way to start is where you guys are now. I mean, can you talk to us a little bit about the whole situation with Simon coming on board and, and your feelings toward that? And your, I know you've only played a few shows, but what's your general feeling of this, the way the band stands at the moment with Simon? Um, we're very happy the way things are. Um, big country has always been, um, y- y- the future of big country has always been uncertain. It's always been a, uh, a fragile thing. I mean, I, I know I haven't quote and lyric there, but it, big country has always been very fragile under the surface of his, of his toughness and the robust sound and the thundering marching drums and the, you know, the, 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 the rousing guitars it's underneath it's always been it's always been <laughs> a whole flow of different things happening underneath uh, which causes things to be um you know behind the scenes always very delicate you know it's like any any relationship um things shift and move around and you know uh, recovering from uh, the loss of Stuart, you know wasn't easy and mike mike played a great role in that coming back in uh, you know reviving the band obviously yeah. it took it took took all of us including tony at that time to get involved um we needed that time to pass to uh reflect and to feel what was the right thing to do but you know mike came in and did a fabulous job um and uh obviously when mike came in we knew i mean everyone's very individual in this band so everyone you know as much as we we, we're seen as as one unity you know behind the scenes everyone has different opinions like anything and mike really brought a lot of spirit of what uh, Big Country's flavour was and, and um, particularly in the way he respected Stuart's past and looked to that a lot to uh, inspire himself for the future with us. Right. But we always knew that Mike came with um, the fact that he was from another band. You know, his, his, his being with us was, was magnificent, but we all always knew at some point he would have to go and 
do what he has to do with his own band. You know, he wasn't just a member of, of Big Country. And, um, you know, getting through that was, was for me, it, it, it was something that I saw an inevitability. Um, but other band members found individually they had different different feelings over what happened. But for me, I could see that, you know, Mike, he reignited the band because, uh, you know, we needed the front man, the guy who had the voice, who could deliver, uh, take on, you know, be the guy at the front leading the helm, like like Stuart always did. We we had the guitar sorted out between Bruce and Jamie, but we didn't have that lead vocal, and the, and and that guy driving the band. And we had our own mini Bono, to be honest with you, with Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and very much we you know, people said that back to us. But you know, when when the American tour finished, and it you know. It was a fabulous tour for me. I enjoyed it. I loved being out in America. I had a really great time. Um, but financially, the last month, it, it didn't do the band any good because we had like three months worth of shows and, and three months touring out here and only two months really worth of gigs. The last month really um, caused problems within the band financially and, it, and it, it made us stand back and look at everything. And at the same time, Mike had been planning um, to go out to... You know, I don't know. He's all around the world, you know, Mike, with his love and strength. He's a very, very, very busy guy, and he's very motivated for his charity and for his music. And I really admire and respect Mike for that. So I knew at some point there'd be a parting of ways, but um, all, all that we didn't realise was it would be, you know, pretty much Mike needed to take almost a year out, and that, you know, I could cope with that because I always have other places I can fall back into. I can revive or make phone calls and get. Uh, not always, but within reason, I can keep myself alive as a drummer. What's it, Bruce? You know, as what was happened when uh, Stuart passed, you know, Bruce went back into Sydney Street and got a, you know, got, went back to his his dockyard job, which was very hard to see Bruce do that. And because we didn't want to see any of that happening again, so with all the momentum that we made in America, which we did make uh, steps forward as, as well as keeping the band together and experiencing playing the, the journey live, which was fab fabulous, and meeting all you guys out there again, you know. Um, we needed to really work, keep keep that alive and, and still keep the engine oiled and, and moving forward. So, uh, it, you know, it was better that Mike went and did what he did. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think um, when you talk about feeling that it was inevitable i think some of the fans probably felt that way too i know that i i sort of had that feeling when he first joined you know well it, it, how bruce described it and it really sums it up to be honest was you know we can't get Stuart back there are bands that have got their, their lead singers that are still alive you know from the jam with paul weller um you know from fish with marillion and the list goes on there are people where the singers move out of the band but they're still on the planet but Stuart, Stuart unfortunately left the planet so we can't ask him back so right. to be able to carry on, we have to have the vocal in place. And to be honest, and this isn't trivialising anything, this is actually sort of put in his pocket. Bruce, it doesn't really matter who it is, as long as they're great mm. and they can perform the songs with the right spirit and attitude, because they are the new Doctor Who. That's what Bruce called it. <laughs> That's great. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's still the Doctor. You know, it does. It's never going to be Stuart. So it's going to be somebody, and right. they are the new Doctor Who. And in a way, I kind of saw. Bruce meant when he said, yeah, first of all, you know, we were, it kind of came came along by, not by accident, we were rehearsing up in Clitheroe uh, because we have new, uh, we have new, uh, we have new agent um, in Pete Barton from mm -hmm. Rock Artist Management. And he does more than just um, be the agent. He, he does 
you know, more, more like day-to-day running of a band. He's a musician himself. He sings lead vocals for the animals. He's a very talented guy. He's got a fabulous voice in, in, in a different style to Big Country, of course, in a bluesy way. And he plays great bass. But because he's a musician as well as a businessman, he was able to really look at the band and say, well, look, guys, you are in a little bit of a position here. Mike's had to go and do what he's got to do. We all respect that. And we wish him well. Um, and I'm still really great mates with Mike. You know, I, I really do wish him well. Um, and uh, he, he, he just said, look, with all the people that I know, because I have a big roster of people that I manage, and I've got, uh, an, you know, an infrastructure of different bands and people that are in and out of different bands. I've got a lot of people here that we can call upon. And one guy I think you should try out for sure is, is Simon Howe. Simon Howe, he's a, he's a real nice guy. See what you think. It was pretty much that. We were rehearsing ourselves while we were, you know, scratching our heads as to how we move forward. <laughs> and Simon came down and he was amazing. He'd done a little bit of homework through Pete giving him a heads up to learn two or three songs. And he came in and he sounded remarkably like Stuart, I must admit. Not deliberately, but the fact that he is a, he's a proper vocalist. I mean, he's done stuff. He's got good background. And he's a nice guy. He's more of our age group. And Bruce, first of all, was was like he went. He's he's amazing. But then he had Bruce suddenly had cold feet and said to me, "I'm not sure about Simon." And I said, "Why is that?" He said, "He's too good." <laughs> That's what he told us. He said he yeah. sounded too good. He said he's too good. And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" Because now I, I'm from a slightly different playing field to Bruce because I came up through the kind of musician side of things more so than Bruce where he was more into the punk thing and grabbing guitar and making his own sound as much as I've got my own sound I, 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 I'm in and out of playing with different more musicians than, than, than anyone in the rest of the band perhaps than, say, than Derek so for me it was just a, I, I could see his potential because to me it didn't matter that he was too good uh, I mean too good didn't mean anything to me he was good enough that's i saw it from that level rather than looking from above and coming down i was it was already good enough you know and and knowing that we can't replace Stuart, um as long as when i shut my eyes and i'm playing the songs because i tend to get in my own little space when i play i'm you know i i don't i I often shut my eyes when i play Mm. um and i just thought hang on a minute what i'm hearing here is different to mike because i mike didn't sound like Stuart, which some people say is a great thing mike had his own voice and a wonderful voice that he has um but he brought his own thing to big country which people loved uh some people uh didn't think he sounded like Stuart, but then it wasn't the aim to it was always the aim to represent the songs and coincidentally i i just thought Simon actually has an early Stuart Anderson voice where Stuart's voice changed over the years when he, you know, as people often said, he sounded a bit more Americanized when he moved over here. And you know, he, he was very into, um, you know, articulating himself slightly different when he was singing in the latter days. I think that was his American influence over here with Marcus, with the team that with Marcus and having the Nashville influence. But to hit, to when we first started with Big Country, Stuart's voice, he always said he was never a singer and he always found it quite awkward to tran- to do the transition from being the guitarist in the skids uh, where Richard Jobson was the front man and he suddenly was, you know, the front man, singer, vocal guitarist, singer, songwriter. You know, he had everything to do. Mm-hmm. So he always found it a little bit hard to... He wasn't confident in his own voice um, to the point where when we were having producers in the early days from Chris Thomas to 
to Steve Lillywhite, they they really did encourage Stuart to to really embrace what he actually had naturally. I know I know both producers, are, you know, when Stuart was like almost because he was a very shy guy, Stuart as well. You know, as much as he had the front and stage, he was you know he wanted to do well. He he was proud in what he did. He wanted to be the best, and he, and by being like that, he wanted to question whether everything was okay. And in the early days, he wasn't confident with his own voice. Uh, but everyone else was saying it's fabulous because it's unique. It's you. And it's, it's, you know, you've got your own trademark sound in your vocal. Um, but as he'd never really been that front man, he needed that encouragement, which the producer, particularly Steve Lillywhite gave Stuart. And in the early stuff, you know, the really early stuff, his voice was far more coming from the skids and undeveloped as it was in a way to where he honed his voice um, over years of singing lead vocals and being being the singer of the big country. But those early stuff on The Crossing, um, close action and, uh, you know, those that, that kind of that kind of era. Um, all of us Simon kind of got that timbre in his voice, which is a complete coincidence. I mean, he, he sings like that anyway. And after the first or second show you know there's a few things saying you know he sounds remarkably a lot like Stuart's early voice not that he he sounds like him he sounds like Simon to me but he does bring that flavour the the tonal quality to the band um, that we haven't had since Stuart's gone I know 
made me and Bruce sit down and say how should we how should we move forward with the way we present the songs and what we decided to do was perhaps go the other way to what Mike bought because Mike bought the unique thing that Mike bought was that he had a strong sense of um, you know being ad lib you know he'd be out in the audience he'd be climbing things he was like the bono of the band and you know he would break down the songs and he would you know, he, he had this whole Bruce Springsteen thing that he loved where he could cue the band to come back in, making it more theatrical. Right. He was and, definitely a showman. Yeah, very much a showman of that kind of school, the Bruce Springsteen and the Bono, uh, and, you know, very much Mike Peters. And he loved Big Country for being able to do that. And we embraced that. You know, we, we had lots of breakdown sections and, you know, the, the, the ad-lib stuff was all over the shop where... Sometimes we didn't even where we were when Mike was coming back in. We we'd have to sort of second guess each other. <laughs> right. But what me and Bruce sat down and said, look, it's sounding fabulous with Simon. It's reminding us of the early days. So why don't we just take the songs back to the way they really were when we uh, when we recorded them? So we've looked at the arrangements and we've gone all the breakdown sections. We're going to play them like the record because they stand up as, as a song. Nice and. And it's getting back more to our roots, you know, rediscovering where we came from, it, more so in the way we were arranging them. We, we dropped a lot of the the, the extended middles out, and uh, we're now playing them pretty much like they were recorded, even to the point where we look at the early demos to see how we recorded the demos in the form of arrangement to make them more like playing the record live. Oh, really? You know? Interesting. It made, yeah, it made it interesting because 
I, I had to sort of de-learn my the ad libs became so common you know even Stuart used to live in certain areas 35 years of playing it in a certain way and only playing it once in the original way you know the, the 35 years was 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 the blueprint but the original way it kind of slipped away you know um so we've gone back to the blueprint on a lot of the songs and it, it it's not only made it easier for simon to learn the stuff because of the fact that we can just say look here's the, here's the demo of it learn it that way or here's here's another version let's do it that way um you know we're all on the same page very quickly and, it, and it's refreshing for the band after playing these songs for so long yeah. to actually play them authentically you know because simon brought that authenticity back that, that, uh, less theatrical but more authentic is perhaps i can say oh that, that's a great way to describe it i think <laughs> Yeah, so we're very happy with with the way things are going. Um, there's it's still early days with Simon. Not to, in, 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 nothing to do with saying that in regards to Simon. In the fact that what we're going to do as a band, because you know, I'd like to do a new album, um, and there are little ideas that we always do, like Big Country always do. We always rehearse ideas at sound checks. You know, Jamie's got some great ideas being a young guy. Mm. And Bruce has got stuff bubbling over. I've got ideas, and, and Derek brings stuff into it as well. So we're always jamming little ideas and saying that make a great song, and blah blah blah. Keep that in the, you know, we call it the think tank um, to do a collection of new ideas. That we were always like that with Stuart as well, with Tony. We always, always constantly throwing stuff in to the mix at sound checks, or even when you know backstage before we play, somebody would come up with an idea. And we retain those ideas and run them up the flagpole once in a while to see if we still A, can remember them and B, there's anything we can add to them. And they normally turn out to be fabulous ideas. So that's still happening within the band. And I think right now the focus is 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 pretty much stabilising the band so that, you know, we, people accept Simon. Simon's confident in what he's doing. You know, he had loads of lyrics on the stage, uh, what, obviously, because the, the words, are, you know, Simon said the word to Stuart was a poet. And some of the words... Yes. It's not easy to remember, and I've got to I've got to say because I do play in other bands over the years, and I play other music with different genres, and Big Country is is which I'm very proud of is very very unique, and it's unique in the sense that the structures of the songs aren't typical of what normal if there is such a thing these days I don't know I don't know what's normal anymore, <laughs> but stru the structures of Big Country songs are unpredictable in the way that they unfolded. You know they they almost look like they've been cut and pasted together which in a funny way back in the day they were because when we were recording in the early days when we were recording to tape we know we used to put stuff down and write different sections out and put them on the floor and pick the pieces up and say well that'll go there you know almost like a random jigsaw puzzle <laughs> and and some of his lyrics as well we used to write certain lyrics down on pieces of paper mix them up and see what came out the back and see if you could <laughs> Uh, get inspired by the the randomness of the of the words that would come out come out differently to what he thought you know well, I just, think that worked for you yeah I mean that, that wasn't done all the time but it was something that only in hindsight particularly when somebody like Simon's come in to learn these songs he he found some of them easy because they were the hits that he may have known but the more the stuff that he may not have heard um, like all of us and um, well, some of the uh, restless natives, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, the arrangements weren't weren't stereotypical, so he had to really physically learn them. It wasn't instinctive, if you know what I mean. And I can understand why, um, because the band 
grew out of not being a traditional uh, 12 bar bluesy band you know it didn't have intro verse chorus middle eight outro although some of them did they had sections you know they had a, a moody section or a lifting section or a, a, a thematic section or an, a, you know a drum section <laughs> they had different parts that were kind of bolted together different songs were often bolted together so first few shows simon's had a ton of lyrics all, all, all out on stage and you know uh highlighted in highlight pen on the floor and i remember the other show a few shows back the support band had taken all his notes out and put them in a little pile on the side of the stage to his horror he laid them out the special order that he, you know that, and we were supposed to go straight on the stage so but he's now got a little ipad because i know mike had the same thing he had a big mike peters used to have a big um visual monitor yeah at the front uh where he could cue all the lyrics but now it's all got small simon's got a little ipad on, on the on the mic stand just to not not for all the songs now because he's starting to learn them but um just so he's got that confidence in front of him so it's still early days and he's really getting it together um and we're really happy with things uh, i know i'm often here but once i get on a thread I, I i tend to go off on oh, you like the blue touch paper and i go <laughs> <laughs> hey i love yeah. it this is great we're, i'm just sitting here you know, yeah. listening and taking this all in is it's because you know we don't get a lot of that information, especially mm. here in, in America and in Norway, yeah. where Spine is. So it's it's nice to it's nice to hear See, a little of the inside how right, it's developing. Well, right now, to kind of get the band going, we're we're a kind of the focus of the band shifted from. I mean, the whole music industry has changed. As as being a musician yourself, as you know, it's all downloads. You know, you don't have the big record deal anymore. When we were signed, we were signed for, you know, five album deal. Um, and you don't get those anymore. Yep. So we've got to kind of make our own route and it, a lot of it's survival. You know, it's a tough world out there and you know, we were a band that's had uh, tragedies and highs and lows and had to survive those changes. And, you know, the music still stands up. People still want to hear the songs and, and, you know, we, we all co-wrote those songs and we, we love playing them. And I know, I know there's a whole world out there of people that love to hear our music as, 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 you tell us you know so we love playing the songs but right now we're in this period of kind of getting this without without using the word the journey we're kind of starting the journey again because since mike's moved on to doing the alarm and and doing his own thing uh we've had to kind of regroup and start again and right now it's kind of the nuts and bolts the hard the hard work of the band is, is we're we're a working band most weekends now and um that wasn't how big country used to be you big country used to have different seasons in, in the old way of you know you would have a season of writing uh demoing maybe having the release with, with with a little flavor of what's to come with the album that's still being written and recorded then you have your six weeks tour you know then you have time off to be at home and then you have more writing periods but this time it's kind of pretty much taken our body of work and getting everyone into the machine process of, of actually becoming a really great sounding band again by mm. touring, you know, and, and touring each weekend, which is kind of what we're doing. Uh, but personally for me, I want to see the new, new ideas that are there. I yeah. don't want to lose the aspect of having a new album. I know Bruce at the moment is very much like, well, let's, let's get ourselves steady before we move on into those areas. But for me, I already feel we're pretty steady because Simon's doing such a great job and he's, mm. he's learning very fast and bringing his own flavor to it um, as well that 
Well, I, I tell you what, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Bruce has been very active on uh, a Facebook page called the Big Country Guitar Group, and uh, there's it's where guitarists talk about their craft. But Bruce has posted some clips of him playing along with Jamie some new uh, some new music that they've written and been working mm-hmm. on, and it sounds great. I mean, it, a lot of it harkens back to the restless yeah. natives. Yeah, so I see one. Yeah, they they it's sounding. Bruce has always got great ideas. You know, he's as much as Stuart bought a massive amount to the band, it's undeniable, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff that Bruce bought as well. And often in the early days, Bruce was quite unsung because uh, the focus was a lot on Stuart. And that's not taking anything away, but it's more saying that Bruce, you know, is to be credited for, for a lot more than people actually realised, you know, with the sound and and some of the flavours that you get and, and a lot of the attitude in the guitar playing also was embellished by Bruce. But he's got great ideas, Bruce, and he still has that, sound you know he has the guitar sound with jamie without a doubt it's absolutely phenomenal and i yeah. do like i did hear i did actually only last week um i think i found it by accident <laughs> i thought bruce doing here playing the guitar What's he doing? <laughs> <clears throat> and i thought that's a quite, quite a nice um that's a nice idea bruce tends to have great ideas and i i i always felt within the band um particularly with the combination with stuart both of them had great ideas but it was the sum of the band that brought the ideas into songs because again they don't write in a traditional way you know they i i know i know writers that will write a song from start to finish in a traditional way right whereas if bruce writes with a with a kind of a feel he, he writes with he'll get a great section or a great sound he's inspired by a sound you know and he'll repeat that sound with it with a few basic chords and then you've got the bones of a really good song an idea uh, but it needs often, often I find um, when he brings it into the band, it turns it from being an idea into a song more so, particularly once lyrics are involved. Um, but Bruce writes in a unique way, which I love. And it always gives me room because I always like to get involved in the arrangement as well as as well as the music because I, I play a bit of piano myself, not in a great way, but I'm good at I was going to say he mentioned that, and and I think people were a little surprised to hear that and that you mm. that you play the keyboard and play piano and he he told us that you contributed piano. a lot to that to the writing well, of I, 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 I really don't just like being the drummer although that's my that is my role because the fact that music moves me the only reason I play the drums is, is, is because I'm playing music I've always been from a musical side of playing the drums you know I, uh, as much as I can do solos and do that stuff uh, you know there's clinicians out there that tour and do that stuff for all the drum companies and they're, they're phenomenal but I'm actually a song drummer I play songs it's playing music that's the, the, re- the reason I picked up playing the drums wasn't to be a drummer per se to, to go out and do solos and you know yeah. uh to be a clinician although now and again you you gotta you gotta do that if, if you get asked to do that by your sponsors i'm actually a, a song drummer and i and i love the fact that i've got loads of music in my head and um obviously from a different source where bruce and stuart went through the sort of more punk thing i came up through funny enough all the american style of music you know Anything that didn't have lyrics on, I was really into because the drumming was more prominent, you know, in the early days of Billy Cobham and uh, Return to Forever, Herbie Hancock, Chick Career, all that stuff that, you know, Steely Dan, although the Steely Dan had great vocals in there. But the muso side of stuff, I always was really inspired because nobody had heard that, that stuff really in the UK in the early 80s, late 70s, other than musos and being, you know, in a band that was a young and creative band I, I i wanted to tap into some of the the great drum style things you could get the more detail that was involved in drumming 
rather than what was, what was happening in the UK. But alongside of that, I always always wanted to bring my musical side in where, you know, I would suggest how a chord may need to change or, you know, um, a key change or even suggesting notes or even get my keyboard out and playing a whole section, which is what I did often, uh, to bring a new piece into the song, a middle eight or, you know, I, I really love music. So I often sat frustrated watching the guys you know, whilst we're all in a room together, drumming the guitars, and I think, why don't they go to that chord? And they're going, what chord is it, Mark? And I say, I can't sing you a chord, I've only got one note. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a keyboard here, I could break down the notes, because I understand all that stuff. I do know music. Right. And so in yeah. the end, I just brought my keyboard down, and then, you know, I could say, right, Tony, this is your root note, stay there. Bruce, <laughs> go to this chord, but I don't know what it is, but here it comes, <laughs> these notes. Um, and he would sort of go, well, uh, you know, that, that's not playable on the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, try and make it sound like it, you know, just go there now. And, um, and then he, he'd come out with his own version of it normally. And it would always sound better because it sounded like big country again. And, uh, but I did, I, I still do like to contribute in my own way. Um, uh, one song came directly from my keyboard that, that I'd written in 1991, actually. Hurt, Hurt was, was, was a song that I almost, not without the title, there's no lyrics, but the main theme of Hurt was, was from a keyboard thing I did, along with many other songs I've got on my keyboards. Um, and Mike kind of came up with, with the chorus. Um, but yeah, I do love it contributing musically, and we're still going to be doing that as we did on the journey, you know, when I took my keyboards in. I think it's really important, and it's something I've always done in the band, I mean, I have told this story before, but I remember years ago, we were sitting by the piano, and I don't know what studio it was. Um, I was in a studio somewhere, because we were in so many studios, whether it be in Scotland or in London or in a demo studio or a master studio. And Stuart was at the piano, and me and Stuart used to try and play the piano together. I'd sit on one end of the store, we'd sit on the other. And we'd just play one finger stuff, and he'd come up with a little riff on the piano with one finger. And I'd come out with a counter melody on the on the other side, be it higher up or lower down. And I, and I said to him, why don't we do something where we don't hit any white notes? Just let's stay on all the black notes, because it always sounds a little bit, um, I'll probably come up with the wrong explanation here, Chinese or... No, uh, like a chopsticks you know, type song. Yeah, yeah chopstick, completely, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's that basic. And that's where chance kind of came from. There was, there was already the bones of chance through Bruce and Stuart. And I went onto the keyboards and it kind of, we ended up playing a little bit of chance and uh, as was already there. And then I came up with the, um, the, the intro section, which was all on the black notes, bar one white note you have to hit, which most people have no idea that I was involved in that, which was that, they're all on the black notes, bar one note, which if you play that, you'll see the one I mean. Um, it's little things like that, that, you know, I didn't make any noise about that, but um, I'm always involved in contributing in that in in the whole thing rather than and and vocally, as you know, I like singing as well, rather than sitting playing the drums. Yeah, and you've done great at that. And yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I know you want to. You got something to ask here. Yeah, I just uh, hearing you think about contributing musically, and that. Mm reminds me of something that Mike told us in a, mm. an interview some episodes back where he said he felt it was important that as much music as possible stemmed from Bruce and yourself 
mm-hmm. that uh, this was the pure source of uh, big country music, and he felt really strongly about that. Is that uh, really the view of the band? I, when I listen to you, it seems like everybody's free to contribute, and you have a great think tank, and uh, yeah. the, somehow it still sounds like big country by your involvement. Well, it, it's nice you to say that. I mean, it's true, everyone in big country, the great thing about coming into big country because me and tony came in uh, when they were looking for a rhythm section as you know that it was it was me and tony thankfully and we we're very proud of that but when me and tony got asked to come down to the studio we, we you know as you probably know we were working with pete townsend and it was the right to work march from brockwell park in 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 newcastle they were working they were walking down to re- reenact the march done in the 20s for the right to work and they ended up in Brockwell Park in London and Pete Townsend was headlining and me and Tony had worked with Pete Townsend on the Empty Glass album. So we were playing in the Pete Townsend band live and Ian Grant was in the audience with, with his band called The Members as well as managing Stuart Adamson within the skids. Oh, yeah. And you know, it, we were at the right place at the right time. We'd already done a tour, unbeknown to Ian realising who we were. We'd done a tour with the skids with Simon Townsend with On The Air, me and Tony and Simon. Uh, a year or it's a year and a half before that so we'd met Stuart anyway and then when Ian approached us and said to Tony you know I've got this band that are looking for a rhythm section and you know you 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 and Mark you didn't know who I was actually Ian you two guys you know would you be interested in coming down and playing some songs down at the studio we jumped at the chance um but of course we've all we'd already met Stuart and it was the first time I met Bruce and it, it just fell into place straight away the chemistry was completely right. Everyone played amazingly together in those early demos. We we, we knew we had a unique sound together. It, we're almost like we're almost like the Bumblebee. It shouldn't really work because there's two <laughs> Scotsmen with this really bizarre style with these two musos from London that were into prog rock. You know, right? We're like the Bumblebee, and they bolted us together, and it's like, hang on a minute, it sort of works. You know, that you've just got this whole combination that works. So it, it's not something I never saw coming. Do you remember, um, Mark? And I'm sorry to interrupt no, you. you but, and I'll keep talking. <laughs> no, I, I, I just was going to say that this this is something I wanted to ask you about anyway, so I'm so glad that you're talking about it. I'm just very curious because to a lot of us fans, that first meeting and that first time that you guys played together is kind of envisioned as this you know magical experience where you guys realize you had this chemistry. Do you remember exactly what you what you actually played the first time you ever played together, what song it was or what – See, Bruce would be able to answer that. Okay. I could have a stab at it, and Bruce would go, "That's complete pish. It was wrong." <laughs> Let me tell me, I'm, t- you know, um, I can't really say what it was. I think it was, and what it, it may have even been, it could have been all of us. Oh wow, interesting. It could have been that. It could have been something like I, I remember them playing a demo to me, and the way the drum tracks were always done was that I think Bruce played the hi hat and snare. <laughs> And Stuart hit the floor toms and cymbals. But then there was something unique about that style where I, where I heard this demo. I thought, what the hell's that on the drums? <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> and then I suddenly thought, I suddenly thought, hang on a minute. Why don't I try and do my version of it? So where I would never have gone onto the floor tom because it was like, I wouldn't have done that. Right. I thought, no, I'm going to go down that. I'm gonna, they've obviously hit the floor tom for a reason. That's part of the, the timber of the song in their demo. I'm going to 
I'm going to hit the floor, Tom. And it became almost my trademark in those times. <laughs> you know? And again, it's, I was learning. I was very open to learning what made things sound different. And yeah. Bruce, and, Bruce and, and Stuart both playing the drum kit, trying to make a drummer out of two people that couldn't play. I tried to create that in a, in, in a, in a more organized way on the drums. Uh, as well as feeling that you know it, it was a unique way of playing, I kind of it helped me develop my style by listening to how they couldn't play in a way in a, in a bizarre way. That's so interesting. It is, it's funny because I was reading yeah. in um, that book a certain chemistry before we spoke today, just to kind of brush up on some of the the background. I don't know if you remember that book, but it was mm-hmm. it came out in '86 or something. And Way too early. <laughs> yes, yes. And you referred. <laughs> It was funny how you referred to the skids. Uh, you, you said you thought they were diabolical. <laughs> well, when we, when we see, I, 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 I mean, I'll I be candid here. When when I was starting off drumming, I, my whole thing was, I mean, I've got to be honest. If you were to hear some of my early stuff with Tony Butler and Simon Townsend, we were we were like Rush in yes. as teenagers. We were so ahead of our time. I'm. Yep. I've heard some of that, so yeah. I, I yeah, we were very together musically in in a prog rock way, and of course, you know, prog rock went out the window when when punk came in and it swept it swept away disco and prog rock, you know. But I still love prog rock for the fact the drums were always fabulous because they were drum orientated, different side time signatures. They were up in the mix. I liked them for a reason, you know. I could hear the drums, and they were very very interesting. Some very complicated and very inspiring. So when punk came out. It's a hindsight thing for me. I think punk was a magnificent thing that happened. But when it first came out, I was horrified. It was like all that I'd aspired to be, like these amazing American drummers from Lenny White to her, to Mike Clark to, uh, you know, all my hair, Billy Cobham, Steve Gadd, Harvey Mason, all these amazing American players. Nobody had heard of in the UK, especially my players I'd listened to. Mm. I aspired to be the, these people, that, you know, but all of a sudden, all my trying to be great went out the window when I heard somebody thrashing around the drum kit as if it was two guys playing the drums. <laughs> right. And it was. It was Bruce, it was Bruce and Stuart. <laughs> and you know, that, that was like the sound of what was happening. Um, but having said that, there were some great players from that era as well. You know, I, I got to learn. It became part of what made me me, you know, having to absorb that 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 train crash of, of musicianship for me at that time. Right. Um and I think and that's it, what made Big Country so special too. It because is. You, it not, yeah, you had those two different worlds colliding, and it was so beautiful. When the skids were playing, I got to say I didn't like the skids. On I say I like the skids. I like Stuart's guitar playing, and I'm not saying that because he was in the band. I thought I thought they had a great image. I was a bit. A bit yeah, I've got to I've got to say this. When punk broke, I was. We went from a five-piece prog rock band with the Simon Townsend band. To, to the band called On The Air where we stripped it down to three piece and we went into a bit of a power pop punk band we actually changed ourselves so we, we you know going on the back of the Skids tour all that time we were more in harmony musically than we than we would have been had we we would never been on that Skids tour as a prog rock band so we were already embracing what was around and I did embrace the Skids you know Bruce said I thought it was diabolical I don't think I ever said that I just thought <laughs> I just thought it wasn't the sort of band I want to be in at that time of my life, you know, because when I wanted to be in this other band, but you know, I was very young then and very impressionable, and it was so different to what you know I'd I'd ever heard. But I thought they were a great band to start off with. I, mean, I thought the fact that the audience, you know, would, would, would go mad when they played, and I'd never seen anything like that. I thought Stuart had a, a, an incredible star within the band. You know, I saw him 
at that point instantly from the side of the stage because I went out the front with Tony many times to watch the skids play. And I would, me and Tony would sit, stand there and look at Stuart and go, he's a guitar hero. He's one of those guys. He's a guitar hero in a band. You could see he had the whole thing. And, you know, he had that, like I would say about Pete Townsend, all the great guitars, Johnny Marr, you know, depending on what area you go to, he had that. So I never thought they were rubbish. I just thought they were musically very different to what I could understand at that time. Right. I, I got involved in the band to the point where they suddenly said to us, just going back to where I was when we went down to the studio, they said, look, it's all sounding great. Everyone's really happy with everything. And the record company are really over the moon. It's all sounding good. And, you know, there's a record deal to sign. And, and I just went, record deal? I don't sign anything. <laughs> I mean, stupid as it was at that time, because people get the right arm to do it now. Uh, I wasn't sure about it, is the yeah. truth. Yeah. Um, I, I remember Tony jumping at me you know, saying this is this is the best thing that's happened and blah 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 and I'm going, Well, mm, are you sure? <laughs> I wasn't really sure. I wasn't sure at that point what I would be allowed to do drum wise. I think that's probably where my head was at. I wasn't sure what the scope was for me at that point. Not that I had I, I just my head was back into a different style coming up the prog thing. And you know, I when the when the when the record deal got came through the post and everyone had signed it and they were once again waiting for my signature, you know, I'm very shy at signing anything because I'm like, oh, what's it, what's it going to mean? Will I ever be able to play my drums again with anyone else? You know, will it cramp my style? Is this the right thing to do? Blah blah blah. You know, all all the three things I shouldn't be saying as a as a as a, as a late teenager. Yeah, I was in my early twenties. Um, I didn't sign the record deal. I wanted to think about it, but at that time. Um, I knew that I worked so great with Tony and, and I, I had the, the whole empathy thing with Bruce and Stuart. I knew there was something quite magnificent happening. I did, I did, I did realize that I was just really unsure whether, you know, I would be able to still play with anyone else. And, you know, I wanted to be this big session man, like, like the greats were from, you know, from Steve Gadd to, you know, all the guys I loved in America at that time. Mm. And I didn't want to just suddenly limit myself with, but, Having said that, Tony and Bruce and Stewart signed this deal, and I, I, I just thought, what's wrong with myself? I've got to get, you know, I've got to get involved in this. It's, it's too good to, to, to let go. I knew there was something magical there. I must admit, I did feel that as well. Uh, but I was torn in between my sort of preserving the, the, the area that I wanted to move forward in, and um, not realising that it would be actually this, this kind of music, you know. But very quickly. I was able to put my stamp on it. Um, and also, to be honest with you, I was allowed to get away with a lot of things that a lot of drummers perhaps these days wouldn't be allowed to play as much as I got allowed to play, you know. I was able to express myself in a very unique way within Big Country, which gave me my own unique style and sound, I suppose. Well, see, that's really interesting because one thing, I, one other quote from this Certain Chemistry book from Pete Townsend that I always wanted to ask you about, so now I get my chance. And mm -hmm. this, is, this is, again, this is from 1986. Here's a, here's a quick quote from him about you, and he says, My main fear hearing the first album was that Mark would not find enough uh, scope for musical growth within Big Country. What is interesting is that Tony is perfectly fulfilled in the band. He has a new sound which works well with Bruce and Stewart and seems to thrive on stardom. Mark, however, needs to be stretched. It would be a pity if he had to look constantly outside of Big Country for a challenge. 
So what, what do you think of that quote? And, and and now years on, I mean, do you feel like? And you just pretty much said that you were that you were challenged in big country and did feel. Oh, yeah, well, I think that these, these were early days. I mean, exactly. It, 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 it's an interesting quote. I'm and I, knowing Pete Townsend as I do, I've recently been working with him. I've oh, been great. in the studio. Yeah, I'm, I'm working with him at the moment. Um, it, it's interesting because he is very much a guy to to stretch you. I mean, he really. I think I can under because when you're talking about yourself, it's hard to stand back and talk about yourself. But I, I think you bring somebody else in the mix and see what they say about you. I think I think I can realise why he said that. And you know, Tony really wanted to. In a way, I'm like, I didn't want to settle down and get married. Tony wanted to settle down and get married and and have kids. Better thought, you know, better thought. What's the word? Uh, with the band. Yes, and I and and you know he was happy for this to be his 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 family and his baby. I was still like scratching around, going, you know, I still want to do my jazz fusion thing. I want to be one of these drummers. I want to be the prog drummer. I want to be this jazz. I want to be like the, one of these American greats, blah blah blah. But in Britain, and when I was working with Pete from the first, I mean Tony was working with Pete at that time as well on the Empty Glass, and Tony's actually a very very complicated, busy bass player. Although he plays it in a simple way, he can play really simple, like he does, or very busy, like he's a lead guitarist within the band. So he's got a fabulous start, Tony, not unlike John, John Entwistle, where he can play very busy and powerful. But he can play very simple as well, Tony, you know, when he gets, when he, he just has this chilled out way of playing the basic notes sometimes. And he can just hit those notes right, you know. And he, I, with, with, with Pete, when he Pete was quite intrigued by me for the fact that, I mean, bearing in mind you know he was he had Keith Moon who would he would be Mr. Random on drums you know <laughs> Keith wouldn't play the same twice, but what you got was when you captured that moment that would be there forever you had this most wonderful drum track that most drummers adore his drumming like I do because they're they're almost a captured one off at random you know, and uh, it had that spontaneity into it and I tried to be a bit like that myself where. I would try and put into music and I'd always say, oh, do you want me to do it again? Let me do another drum track. See if you like it like this. Let me see if you like it like that. Perhaps I could add this. Perhaps I could do that. You know, I never had, you know, I was always eager to throw in loads and loads of ideas. And in a way, I did that when I first worked with Pete. You know, I brought in different rotor toms and loads of different snare drums and I would go through, uh, you know, how I could play the song and he would go with me and say well you know why didn't you try and think differently in the beginning why didn't you you know he would challenge me a lot Pete would and you know we've gone full circle here because not not only did I I have that chance to do that when Steve Liddywhite was recording with us Steve really liked my drumming I was very grateful that he did and Steve would basically say to me you know that was great why didn't you try and think completely different why don't you why what, the overdub that you wanted to do why don't you see if you can play it in your drumming see if you can add it into the drums why don't you see if you can the bit you did when you were sitting playing on your own you know when you didn't realize we were listening why don't you try and throw that in the middle eight you know he would be very keen into hearing hearing my detail and it's the detail that he liked you know the devil's in the detail of my drumming as far as steve was concerned as well as having that big sound so a lot of big country stuff has got for me, when I look back, it's got a hell of a lot going on in every section, you know, um, where I'm allowed to, to really expand and try and put an original style into some drumming, you know, because 
drumming can be very mundane it can be very much like anyone else all the great drummers for me had not only did they have their own drum sound but they had their unique style at that time from keith moon to john bonham to mitch mitchell you know to uh, ginger baker you know from the brit stuff they all had their own unique sound their signature sound and i always wanted that and steve Lillywhite gave me that mm. because i had it there to give you know i had my own way of tuning and there was a little bit of twist on my playing but going back to pete townsend you know i'm I'm really honoured that I'm, I'm, I'm chuffed that I've been working with him recently. Um, just before Christmas, I went in to do some songs uh, for his new musical, his new rock opera called Floss. Oh, that's incredible. He's writing. It's been a long-going project with Pete. Uh, I've been on and off uh, with uh, a starting schedule, and it's been cancelled because he's either got busy with Tommy or The Who or or rewriting his um, narrative for, for the lyrics. You know, his... The, the theme of these the storyline changes slightly as as time passes so wow. we eventually went into the studio and and it, this goes back to when i did an album with pete townsend called psychedelic and we uh, mm-hmm. and that was in a very that was a very experimental album with pete and again pete really enjoyed challenging me on that on on that record and it was not unlike going to do floss this time around he had lots of uh sequence backing tracks kind of like the won't get fooled again sequences that you get uh, the arpeggio stuff um, with with his trademark guitar pete's songwriting is constantly evolving at the time i went into the studio and it's an interesting time to work with somebody when it's not quite defined mm. uh, because you're again you're allowed to to experiment you know do several takes with pete where he would call me back into the studio listen to what i've done then sing a different different lyric to me um and then either phrasings and the accents and the tone of the song would perhaps change and he'd say right bear that in mind now go and play it again uh maybe stay off the ride symbol or something you know he'd tell me to he he knows what he wants but he's not sure how to get it so he likes to get you to bring it with him and i enjoyed doing that pete immensely and i think that's probably what he meant regarding challenging me when he wrote about me years ago which which is uh, very complimentary i must say yeah, yeah. You, mm. have to, you have to mention that to him next time you speak to him <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah i've enjoyed working with pete um and it's uh, apparently ongoing at the moment because he's in between schedules with the who excellent, excellent. So I, I think i'm about a six seven songs in on the on the, on the musical oh, that's but he's fantastic the drummers i think abusing simon phillips i think I'm not sure. Yeah, you, you keep you mm. keep crossing paths with uh, Simon Phillips here and there, mm. or or not crossing paths as it would be. Well, it, in the early days, I mean, Simon was one of my heroes. You know, he was when he was in Judy's Soup. I loved his playing and the Mike Oldfield stuff, and uh, he you know he got involved in the Who as well. He was a fabulous drummer in the Who. I mean, it was I went to see him in Los Angeles actually play when they had the full brass section, and obviously him playing with Buffalo Skinners. Um, and me working with Pete at that psychedelic album, we crossed paths by playing in the so other it's band. It's funny. It's very yeah, funny. It's a bit of a twist there, but I, I, I was involved with Zildjian symbols. I still am, and Simon is a Zildjian in Dorsey, and more so in the 80s that we crossed paths physically where we, was, we would be asked to do some drum clinics together. I did more clinics in the 80s, and you know it was it was a real blast playing with simon because he he's a he's a fabulous musician as everyone knows and he's a great clinician he really is a great clinician when he plays the drums and um it was just an honor to 
yeah, a to be on the same bill as him, but also to because he was one of my heroes to to sit and play duets with him, which is what we would do on these clinics. At the end, we would play together. Uh, we would oh, finish wow. the show playing together. So we would do a little rehearsal uh, ourselves. You know, we would hire a rehearsal room in London, and we would have a little, you know, two or three hours together. Uh, and this happened several times. So we we got we got to know each other really well, um, and you know talk and actually embracing each other's style you know we'd ask me to play a bit and we'd join in and i'd ask him to play something and we really would exchange ideas in a rehearsal room which was was phenomenal so i, I love his style as well you know it's, it's it i you know i do all his playing and i i think i know pete loves his playing as well so we, i have an affinity with simon's playing and i think pete realizes that and, and we play we can play in a certain way with with it, with with a certain style of music and pete uses us for that reason i think um mm -hmm. although we bring our own individuality to that which is different but uh somewhere somewhere we can join together we can be separate on on each side but somewhere we we can speak the same language me and simon yeah exactly uh, well let me bring up the buffalo skinners real quick since you brought that up <laughs> I, I think i think it's always been of interest to big country fans you know maybe what you thought of the one album that really did not feature your drumming on it and obviously everyone knew that you and simon were were you know fellow admirers of each yeah. other but i'm just curious what you thought of his approach was to a big country album and if that seemed strange to you at the time to to listen to that music with someone else playing on it do you know i gotta say because it was simon i loved it it's mm. I, I was thrilled to hear his drumming because I, I love his playing so much so that i was biased it had it been somebody else I would have been, I, I would have felt a bit odd. I probably wouldn't have even wanted to hear it, to be honest. Right, right. But being Simon, and I know what he brings to it, I thought he did a fabulous job. I loved his sound. Uh, I did think that he'd, he'd gone in and listened to He'd done his homework because I thought there was certain um, doffing your cap to, to how I would perhaps approach it. No, I thought his approach was, was bang on for the time. I thought the choice of drama was perfect because... Um, it's a tricky area this for me because I have <laughs> right. know, I, I have started to tell the story. It's a very tricky area this because you know Well I read your I, interview in Classic Rock yeah, where you, you know, talked the, about the, the this. The period I was outside the band was, was, was an unhappy time for me because it was something I didn't want to see happen. Yeah. Uh, and you know it's a really weird period that for me because I went in and did I, and I don't know which album it was it was either Why the Long Face or or um, I mean, no place like home. No I think place like home. there was one where I purely was not in the band, and I came. They still wanted me to play. Yeah, that was the one. Play. They're my mates. They were my family, and I went in and they did the album, you know, as a paid session musician, which I found really odd. I, I felt very uncomfortable. But as soon as I was with them, you know, it was as if nothing had changed musically. Everything fell into place. As much as those two albums don't get really revered songwriting wise i'm actually really pleased with my drums on those albums you know it's not this, particularly the songs or the direction it was very confused at the time i thought uh, it was a very you know it was a bit like between I can, I can only liken it to between seasons changing you know between like before you go from summer to autumn you know there, there's that period of it being a bit muddled where the, where the weather doesn't know quite what it's doing it's not quite doing summer it's not quite doing autumn and i think big country went through that phase of not really knowing what it was doing but it was still it was still very creative you know and um some of those songs one or two of them are really great i, I still think because i'm involved in them is i hear them differently to anyone else i'm too close to them 
but I was really pleased with my drum sound in some of those tracks and some of those songs that I've got some of my best drumming in, I think, but they they really don't get the airing because people people go, oh, I don't like those two albums. That was that funny period, you know. Um, but you know, as I've as I've spoken before in interviews, it was something. If you don't mind me waffling, I'm still waffling here. No, feel free. This is all great for I, us. If, again, Big Country went through as much as I said at the beginning. You know, Big Country is, is seen as that rousing, strong, you know, driving, marching off the wall band. You know. It, it was very delicate underneath Big Country was, as as what played out with Stuart no longer being here. It was a very delicate band. Um, and again, Fragile Thing is, yeah, it's is such a great song. It, to me, it, it, he's almost singing about the band as well as relationships, because that's what a band is, is relationships. It's very fragile. And what had been happening during that time, I remember it was July 1980, I think it was 89, I think it was, I remember it's in my passport, which is really strange. In my passport, because we're in Jersey, it was the last show of our tour, and Stuart had already been disillusioned with with certain things privately in the management side of things, where he felt that things weren't moving forward. There was a lot of frustration from Stuart, feeling that we should be a bigger band than we were after you know the, the first three seminal albums. And I know he was very much looking at putting. For a long time, he was privately saying to me. I don't know if he was even saying it to Bruce or Tony, but he was saying to me that, as he said it in his own Scottish way, the ball's gone over the fence and, it, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get it back, is what he said. And he meant that about the band, about not that, that we weren't capable, but that it was like we, we, we were only as strong as the sum of the parts and, and it wasn't the band that were, had created the problems, it was, it was the perception from the record company, it was an uphill struggle that we couldn't, he couldn't see a way to make things any better right and i know that was troubling him for a good couple of years leading up to uh to that i remember being i don't know 19th of july we were in jersey something like that but we basically we, we, i think we'd done this whole tour it was you know we, we were now traveling by train across europe you know there's a whole different mindset to, to, to touring things were changing in the music business as well and stuart was very disillusioned with things and and he he, he used to confide in me a lot. I don't, I, again, it's personal for the fact that he, what he said to me at that time, I didn't know if he'd be speaking to the other guys, but he would, he would often talk to me about how he felt big country perhaps at that time had done all, or, or had really achieved all he felt he could achieve. Right. He felt there was a lot more to achieve, but it wasn't through the lack of the band's power. It was the lack of the machinery to get them there, you know? And with that, he said to me that he, he felt, he he should quit the band and that we should carry on without him <laughs> even oh. at that time and of course I, I wouldn't entertain that and privately I said don't be ridiculous you know you, you're probably feeling a bit down and you know things are going to be fine and you know, we need to kick in and more fuss about this that and that and this but I didn't realize it was really really playing on his mind as much as it was because he was a very private person as well as he would you know let things overflow but they would be very very choice things he would let you know but you know you're all wise in hindsight and um he called well he spoke to me in my room and said to me that he was going to be quitting the band or he felt the band should be put to bed and it's something i thought was would be a tragedy because i thought Stuart was you know not only feeling perhaps pressure from being away from his family for so long and having the other issues that were plaguing him during the, perhaps the whole of big country's career was um he had lots of uh you know, he, he was always torn between wanting to get out there and conquer the world and, and at the same time be at home and be a family man. There was always a duality he fought with. And 
that was quite a seminal time for me because we had a meeting within the band separately. In fact, Stuart wrote me a note and put it under my door uh, and talked about pretty much saying, you know, we're going to break, uh, I'm going to split the band up and uh, come the last gig in in uh, Jersey, where it's going to be the last show ever and he's going to let Ian know and then the record company know and John Giddings know and all the agents and all those people, the big players that we had at that time, he was, he, he was going to make it clear that he was going to put the band to bed. Wow. And he wrote me a, a personal note, which I still have, about good luck with anything you do. And, you know, I'm sorry it's had to come to this, but it's, I can't see any way out of it. And I feel Big Country have achieved all they can achieve, although I feel it should have been more. And, and, and there are still more to give. But it's it's really like we've got this great engine and we've got this great engine and, and there's no wheels on it. You know? Wow. And, um, and so this was this was 1989. Yeah. It was '89. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, can I can I chime in on this one? It was '91, John. You tell it me. It was first first of July, 1989, Fort Regent in Jersey. That's it. Was that Jersey? Yeah. Jersey, Fort Regent. Yeah, that's right. So we we knew we knew about a week and a half ahead of that show when we had a band meeting together with Ian that that Stuart decided that that he'd had enough and the band was finished. Wow. So I I personally spoke to Stuart privately um, on many occasions on that trip because we traveled a lot together and I sat next to Stuart and I basically begged him not to split the band up mm. because I felt you know if we you know if we survived all the highs we've got to try and survive the lows because you know it's it's building on what the things are rather than look at the band you know and um, I could see that his head wasn't in a great place at that time and um, you know, it came to that awful day where it, we had a, a band meeting after the show. Uh, I think it was perhaps before we played, and we everyone had flown in. The management had flown in, the agents had flown in, uh, promoters had flown in, um, and it was officially, you know, said by Stuart in the room that this was it. And you know, there was there was tears, and you know, it was a very emotional time where you know disbelief was was, you know. Yeah. I kind of knew it would happen because when Stuart says he's going to do something, he does it. <coughs> you know, he was a man of his word. And I saw it perhaps that he needed some time out more than anything. And the things may just get better. Right. He assured me that it would be permanent. And that, um, then he, this letter that he'd written to me telling me, he said he'd written to everyone to say, uh, you know, really hope I do well in any new venture that I take. He wants me to take gigs as soon as I can, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, that was it you know it was a very emotional time there was a pathetic celebration of all the years we'd had together with champagne and tears as well from different people in the room it was, it was very emotionally charged and we all went our separate ways and I, I made it clear in the room I said look at that time you know it was different for me at that time I, I had a few things that I, I mean I constantly had things that I was not doing I was doing a lot of albums but I wasn't doing any touring because I, I wouldn't take the touring my band was big country with my family but I had at that time Tears for Fears world tour to do I had the tour to do with Sting on Soul Cages I had Fish asking me to do some touring I had a few things and I ended up doing a little bit of each with those um, but I said to the band look if, you, if you're going to break the band up I'm going to start taking this work and it means if I take it, I'm going to have to do it. You know, I can't, I right. can't go on out on the tour thing. And then, you know, three weeks later, they change their mind. I can't do that. I've got right. to know that what they're telling me is going to be happening because 
you know, it's my reputation at stake here, and I've got to survive this this breakup. Stuart assured me that it was permanent and that there wouldn't be any change, and you know, and it, so I went off and did what I did. I went off and worked with Sting. Um, I was going to do a tour uh, on the Soul Cages tour when Billy Colliuta uh, was going to be touring with Joni Mitchell out in in. I was going to start in Mexico with them. I went in and did two weeks rehearsal with Sting, and then Joni Mitchell's tour got cancelled, and Billy. Came back onto the tour as I was only deafing, but I was able to do a TV show and some re- and, and some live recording. We did a we did a re-record of one of the songs. I think it was called All This Time. Um, we re-recorded it to do a live TV show for the Union Rules. Had to re-record, so I went in the studio and recorded that with Sting as well. Plus, I went out and uh, did some touring with Tears of Fears on Saying Seeds of Love, some live stuff uh, out in Europe, and a tour with Fish. And then I formed. I went back to my roots. I just went back with Simon Townsend uh, and we went out to America to try and get a record deal uh, with a band called Huge Big Thing oh, wow. uh, and we did an album actually because I'd done some early stuff with Go West with a producer called Gary Stevenson and Gary was still using me for studio work in the Isle of Man so I went to Gary and said you know he always loved my playing and loved Simon's music so Gary produced an album we went out we did some shows in America and we ended up getting a deal on uh Oh God, boy, we, uh, uh, yeah, well, Armour Ertigan's label. What was that? Atlantic, um, Atlantic Records. Yeah. Okay, good. Pause. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> I yeah, had no idea. Thank you, sir. We had one album to do at that time when the band had broken up to do an album. So I was busy not only doing all my session work, trying to spin plates and make my diary work, and I'd heard nothing from the band. Nobody was talking to each other. And I'd, I'd gone to America. We got a record deal. Uh, well, I met Armit Ertigan. We signed to him to do my album. I was now in the studio in the Isle of Man. Then I get a call from Progal Harm. Gary Brooker rings me up from Progal Harm and says, you know, um, Robin Trower uh, and the original band members, Matthew Fisher himself, have reformed with Keith Reed uh, to do a new Progal Harm album since BJ Wilson died. And it's going to be the first album when I come and do that album. So I ended up kind of joining Progal Harm doing the first album, you know, I was with him for 17 years, actually. Wow, wow. <laughs> and, I had no idea. Yeah, so whilst I was doing all my many things, and particularly the fact that I was contracted to, uh, I'd signed a record deal with Atlantic to do this album and to do a tour. And I think it was a year later, I think t- Tony rang me. And, was it a year later? Or, I, I, I haven't got a time frame here now, I must admit. It's all a bit grey. I know, so much work. I know No Place Like Home came out in 91. Yeah, I, I so. had a call to uh, Tony rang me, no, Ian rang me and said um, he, he he rang me after not speaking to me for six or seven months, I can't remember what it was as if nothing had happened and said, Mark, it's Ian where are you? <laughs> where am I? I'm in Yala Van, what do you mean where am I? Oh, the band have made a mistake um, Stuart's back in, uh, we got some uh, well done records but I've got what and i couldn't do it i couldn't come back i was contracted to do my other stuff i was also really annoyed the fact that after all that i pleaded with you know to not break up that all of a sudden that they were doing a u-turn i was pleased at the same time and as it happened i, I went in and did the was it no place like home you have to remind me because my brain's not good on albums yeah yeah so it was very very strange because i was in between working with uh you know Gary Stevenson and Progal Harm's new album at that time I was still recording between recording 
So I was recording with my own band. I was now suddenly back together again. And <laughs> they, they went and used um, Pat Ahern, I think it was, who was originally with Simon Townsend before me. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, because I suggested to Dan, because, you know, he, he had a, uh, uh, he used a lot of drums and he was the early prog drummer that I took over from. And as he knew Tony, I thought he would be a good choice just to, you know, in a way, I was hoping he would keep my seat warm in a way of saying, you know, <laughs> I'd always promised I'd come back. Well, Bruce, and, Bruce said Pat got the job because he decorated Tony's house. He did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably part of it as well. But, um, again, it's, it's all a bit hazy with the time frame here, but I remember one Christmas, because I stayed in contact with Tony, uh, in fact, Tony could stay in contact with me as well. Tony had, um, again, my time frame's a bit vague, but Tony, as after doing that, they, they have no place like home, my long face, Tony rang up and said would you know he really missed me um would love me to be involved in the band they've done a fabulous new album uh but obviously they haven't now got a drummer the, the drummers that they used i think it was pat Hearn and chris bell didn't work out blah 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 and it's ultimately still like me back and i said no problem i'd love to come back things hadn't quite worked out with a huge big thing i'd done the album and there was terrible politics flying around in the record label regarding any any um backing for you know putting that album out and things were uh, you know i could either stay as a session drummer with Progal Haram and blah blah and he decided i want to get back into my family that was my family i'd have really missed it mm. um and we, it, miss, and we missed you too the fact that tony had asked me you know and and um you know i'd never wanted to be i never left the band that was the whole point i never left the band it, the band broke up nobody knew that and when i came back into the band which i was delighted to do especially after hearing the album and you know when i heard simon was on it i was thrilled at his drumming and i thought i can get right stuck into that um and i, I really enjoyed the rehearsals learning those songs and making that the the predominant tour playing those songs um he was right in the pocket where i like to play as well you know he was very sympathetic to my style so I really enjoyed coming back into the band on the Buffalo Skinners. It was it was fabulous that Simon had done that. Um, I was so pleased it was him. And I, I was thrilled to be back. The only thing that really did frustrate me was when I came back into the band, you know, all of a sudden it was news that Mark was back. They had to come up with the story. So they said to me, whatever happens, you've got to say you quit. And I said, well, I didn't quit. We had that, we, we, you know, the band broke up. <laughs> it's like you know we can't say that we you're not allowed to say that because we we've never said anything we've just said you've left and it was like well charming thanks very much you oh know? my so it was like well it's it's going to make me sound like I, I left the band that's awful i never left the band in fact the only person's ever left big country is tony and he's left twice oh, really i didn't even know he, that well tony, actually recently tony obviously left, but yeah tony left again in uh, i can't remember the time you know 10 years ago tony quit the band i think yeah, he left right after the Drown to Damascus tour in Europe, I think. Yeah, Tony quit the band, yeah. And, you know, he quit the band again, you know, in, in recent times. But if you look at Wikipedia, I think it's like, I left the band to to to, to join the shadow past. <laughs> <laughs> landscape of the session world, the shadowy pastures of the session world, you know. I didn't at all. I was always doing session work. So when I came back into the band, I remember feeling really awkward. I was being interviewed, you know, because it was like, oh, for the first time, I wasn't always interviewed because it was always Stuart and, and the guitars. And I, I, I tended to be the quiet one in the band. But all of a sudden it was on me because I was the new focus of the band, the, the man that had quit, you know. So the interviews were, <laughs> why did you quit the band? And I remember one interview we were doing on television with Ian Grant looking at me 
with daggers <laughs> saying, you dare say what was true if you stick to the story. I'm looking I'm looking around the room thinking, what do I say? How do I say it? Oh, <laughs> so I sort of say, oh, well, yeah, uh, I don't even know what I said. I said, I'm really glad to be back with my family. And, you know, that's a good um, way to say it. I'm surprised yeah. they would make you go through with that charade. <laughs> I found it so difficult because I wanted just to say, but then at the same time, you know, we're not the Beatles. It's not a big story. And, you know, as long as we're <laughs> together now, it, 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 it doesn't really matter. It was, it was more it was more personal that I wanted to, to say that because those fans that love the band, I didn't want to, 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 to think, you know, at that time, it was me that deserted them or something, you know, because I'm intensely loyal. Hence, hence, hence my still in the band now, you know, <laughs> hence my talking <laughs> yeah. to the band and begging Stuart not to not to split the band up at the time. You know, I, I spent a good two mm. weeks. I'm really trying to get him to keep the band together. Um, wow. There we are. I didn't realise I've talked so long about that that episode, but it it was a it was a sad episode for me. Um, but perhaps it was something that that was inevitable because it was Stuart could not cope with the band. Um, what or what wasn't happening with the band? You know, he felt yeah. he felt the band as I'm going back now should have been a lot bigger than it was, and I think that's perhaps the flavour of the band when I look at it now from where we are now you know we have a rich 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 history of fabulous music amazing things i've done in my life but still when i see things written about us and it says they should have been a bigger band you know we should have i still i, I accept that and we are going to have to end it right there that's all we have time for for episode 32 but um wow great stuff hope you guys enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed listening to that as it was happening. Just great conversations with Mark. And the good news is that's only part one. And part two is just as interesting, if not more so. So that will be coming in episode 33. So really big thanks to Nirja for putting this together for us. We really appreciate it. And of course to Mark for uh, not only spending so much time with us, but for being so open and and just so willing to divulge so so much cool information about Big Country that we've, you know, always wanted to know. And now we do. So thank you very much, Mark and Nirja. And thanks to John Govea, as always. And on behalf of Svein, this is Tom saying thank you for listening. And we will see you back here next time with episode 33, part two of our discussion with Mark. And as always, you can email us at bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your emails and we really enjoy reading your feedback. So if you're listening to the show and thinking that you like it, consider letting us know it goes a long way in keeping us inspired to keep doing these so we do appreciate it you can also find us on facebook at uh, the great divide podcast just search for the great divide podcast on facebook and you'll find us there a lot of great discussion happens on that page and so that's it we will see you guys next time very soon with part two of the mark brzecki in-depth interview thanks a lot take care (laughs) 